Hey, this is Tyler Johnson, pastor of Mission Church located in Walnut Creek, California. I want to say thank you for tuning in. I hope this podcast inspires you, encourages you, and helps you live the life God called you to live. Enjoy. Good morning. Hope you all had a wonderful Thanksgiving. Thank you, guys. Um, I know I did, and I'm not afraid to echo Mike T's Merry Christmas. Um, Raise your hand if you already have a tree. Those crazy people out there already have trees. Okay, all right, yeah. We have a tree. We have a tree. We got our tree. Um, we are, we are full-on like Christmas people, and, and for us, Christmas begins the moment that the Thanksgiving meal ends, right? So like Christmas music comes on. People are into it in our household. Um, some of you are out there like, that's crazy. You know, maybe you just need to slow down a little bit, but that's just how we are. That's how we do it. Um, so great to be here this morning. Great to uh, always love being able to share here at Mission Church, my home church. For those of you that have not had the privilege to meet, my name is Ian, um, and uh, Mission Church is our home. So um, thank you for letting me share with you. In the early 1500s, grace changes the world, what I would argue, for the second time. So, so Jesus comes, obviously, originally, and brings grace into the world, and the world is radically transformed by that. But in the early 1500s, a very significant moment in history takes place where grace radically transforms the direction of the world, uh, at least in my view, for the second time. So there's this guy named Martin Luther. And Luther... Um, he wasn't, in the beginning, he wasn't planning on going into uh, become a, a monk in the Catholic Church, but he has this kind of weird experience where he's thrown from his horse during a lightning storm, and he cries out to a Catholic saint and, and says, okay, I'll, become, I'll, I'll join the monastery or whatever. He becomes a monk, and kind of a priest in the Catholic Church, and uh, and, and in doing that, right, he, 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 he j- takes on this next sort of journey in his life. And, and he's a good monk uh, for the most part. He's very kind of fastidious, very, very focused on trying to do a good job. But, but something happens to Luther in this process. He becomes hyper-focused and really actually obsessed with the concepts that he is utterly sinful and God is righteous. And he can't bridge those two things. He can't figure out what to do with it. And, and he lives under, for a very long time actually, he lives under this kind of burden of guilt and shame as he, as he, as he looks to God as holy and looks to himself being broken and unworthy and unable to fill what he understands to be the obligations of holiness. And it becomes such an obsession for him. He really becomes kind of an irritation to the people that he's around. I mean, he really becomes kind of a pain in the neck. Um, he, he is obsessed with this. He writes later in his life that he actually began to hate God because of the, expe- the expectations that he felt God had put on him to be holy, which he knew he could not meet. He had a kind of an overseer, uh, kind of a, a, a person who was like his boss in the Catholic Church, uh, this guy uh, Stoppitz, John Stoppitz or Johann Stoppitz, and, uh, and, and Stoppitz would receive his, his confession. So if you're not familiar with the, the systems of the Catholic Church, like you actually would, you can go to church and you would sit in a little box and confess to the Catholic priest, right? So, so he would go and confess to this guy Stoppitz, and he would literally confess for hours, like he would just lay out every little nuanced sin that he had ever had, that had ever taken place, and he would just confess for hours. And and he actually Stoppitz actually says at one point that Luther sometimes would leave. He'd be walking home. He would remember a sin that he forgot to confess. He would hike back to church to make sure that he covered that one as well. I mean, that's how that's how obsessed this guy was. It even gets to the point where Luther develops this 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 uh, this stomach problem. Like he ends up with health issues, and and most most historians believe it's because of all the stress that he took on in his obsessions here. But something happens to Luther. Something very significant happens to Luther, and that something ends up changing him and changing the world. So this guy, Stoppitz, um, I believe that he was originally the one who was, um, he was lecturing for the Bible at this, this college in, their, in Germany where they lived. And he decides that he's going to assign Martin Luther to this, this Bible lecturing post. And this is actually a very unique thing at this point in history because as, as foreign and as weird as it might seem to us, the Bible wasn't actually the primary text for theological studies at this point in history. It was actually a book called Sentences by a guy named Peter Abelard. 
And, uh, and, and so, but, but basically Stoppitz's idea was, you know, Luther either needs to find something to distract him, or maybe if he buries himself in the scriptures, it'll, it'll be good for him. And so he goes, and he ends up lecturing on three different books. He ends up diving in deep and studying these three different books, Psalms, Romans, and Galatians. And in those studies, he discovers something that radically transforms his life. He discovers grace. All of a sudden, he, he had lived his life more or less in the Catholic Church. He's now entered into the Catholic Church. I mean, he's a professional in this business. And yet he had never understood that God is a God of grace. Yes, he is. And for the first time, he understands and he sees the reality of grace. And it completely transforms his life. And he has this own, what, what folks have called his evangelical awakening, but he has this spiritual awakening in his life. And he didn't mean to start a movement, but he basically ends up starting this movement in Western Europe that we now refer to as the Protestant Reformation, and it transforms the world. And most of the churches that you've ever known or been a part of, including this one, owe something to that movement. Wow. Grace. The idea of grace, transforming the world again. This word grace in, in English, or the English rendering of the word, the Greek word for grace is charis. It would be spelled C-H-A-R-I-S. It, it occurs about 150 times in the New Testament. About 100 of those times is used by the, the Apostle Paul. Zero times does Jesus use this word in the Gospels. Fascinating, right? A little fun fact for you. Zero times Jesus utters this word, not even once, during the Gospels. But the thing about the word is that it, 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 what it is, is this is the word that the, the authors of the New Testament and the early church and the first Christians are using to describe the reality that has been ushered in by the person and work of Jesus. Because Jesus, maybe he didn't say that word, at least we don't have it recorded, we can say that. We don't have it recorded that he taught that word specifically, but he lived that word. He demonstrated that word in his actions and in his teachings. Which brings us to our, our text this morning, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15, where we see actually both of these things. At the beginning of Luke 15, it begins with, the Pharisees, who were the, the leaders of the Jewish religion at this time, it begins with the Pharisees criticizing Jesus because he hangs out with and eats with sinners. So here's Jesus living out the grace of God, hanging out with the people that he came to save, and the Pharisees, who they get, they get mad about a lot of things, let's be honest, right? And they get, they're angry with Jesus all the time, right? But, they, but they're over here grumbling that Jesus is eating with sinners. And so what does Jesus do? Well, he tells three stories. The first two stories are about lost things, about a sheep that gets lost and, and, and the shepherd goes out to find them, uh, and then about a coin that gets lost and, and there's celebration when these lost things get found. But the third story, and the story that's going to occupy our time this morning, is a story about a lost son. Now, you've probably heard of this story as the story of the prodigal son. That's a terrible name. It should never have been called that uh, because it's not really about the son. That name comes through church history and church tradition, but, but it's really not about the son. The story is really about the father and the father's love and the father's grace. Let's pray. Father, we recognize that you are a God of grace. God, we recognize that, that, that our, our lives, we are broken. Sometimes we're foolish. We're not going to make the mark, God. We're not going to hit the mark. But at the end of the day, at the beginning of the day, Lord Jesus, it is because of your grace. God, as we look into your word this morning, may you enlighten the eyes of our hearts to see the truth of who you are. Yes, and we pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen, amen. So we're going to be looking at this story this morning, uh, Luke chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. You can get there in your app, or if you have your Bible, you can open up there. I'm not going to read it to you all at once. We're going to read it in a couple sections, but basically I have three points for you this morning. Grace for sinners, grace for saints, and grace for sons. And we're going to start with grace for sinners, starting in Luke chapter 15, verse 11. Jesus continued 
Because he had already told the two stories. So he tells the two stories, and now Jesus continues. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe, a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I love that he prepared a little speech. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son says to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. Why? For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. So Jesus tells this story. I want you to understand this. Jesus tells this story to paint a picture of God. You have to understand that. He, he's intentionally trying to help us, you, the people in, in, hearing this, the Pharisees, to understand something significant about who God is. So the father in the story represents God. The younger son represents anybody who sins. So me and you, right? Everybody. It, it represents all of us. It represents the whole world. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 3, right? And what is the sin of the younger son? I mean, clearly, like he takes the money from his father. He kind of runs off to Las Vegas and goes wild with the whole thing, ends up in a bad spot. But that's not even really the worst of it. That might be the most dramatic. That might even be the most exciting. But that's not really the worst of it. The sin of the son is actually his rejection of his father. Essentially communicating to his father, you know what? I'm really kind of done with you. I don't even really want you. I don't even really want to be in relationship with you. I just want what you would have legally owed me as part of your estate. And and we'll just act as if you're dead and I'm going to move on. That's really the sin of the son in this moment. Along with all of the other stuff that he does to squander his father's wealth. But of course that leads to a place of desperation. which, Which, you know... Think about this, right? Like he goes down this path and he ends up all of a sudden just sitting in this field with these pigs and it says that he's longing to fill his stomach with what the pigs were eating. He's actually like, man, I wish I had some of that pig food. I don't know if you know this, but that's called rock bottom, all right? That's the (laughs) lowest point, right? You're like, oh my goodness. But here in this text, we see Jesus painting a picture of the emptiness of sin, The destructiveness of sin, the brokenness of sin, it promises us all these things and it does not have the ability to deliver on those promises. And I really love verse 16, right? Because it says, he longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. There's no grace in this world for you, right? There's no grace out there, right? We we live in this world that that, 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 that seems to keep talking about you know, peace and love and tolerance and all these things, but I'm waiting to see it, right? I mean, like, I'm not seeing all of that out there right now, right? There's, there's, some, there's some pain, there's some hurting, there's some evil, there's some darkness, there's some confusion. I'm not seeing a lot of grace. But then the man has, or the, the son, anyways, has this experience. 
And it's actually one of the most subtle, but one of the most important part of this text. It says at the beginning of verse 17 that he came to his senses. In the ESV, which is, is you know, always a better translation of the original Greek. Um, you're welcome, Michael Teasley. Yeah. Um, it actually says he came to himself which is a more accurate depiction of the phrasing in Greek. And what it actually means is that the one who acts and the one who acted upon, who is acted upon is the same person. He all of a sudden, as he's sitting there in this pigsty amongst, the, amongst the, the muck and the filth and the pig food and the whole bit, he all of a sudden has this moment of clarity. He all of a sudden comes to himself, all of a sudden realizes, has this moment of accurate, honest self-reflection and realizes that everything that has happened to him is the result of his own choices. All of a sudden he sees the weight, all of a sudden he sees the consequence of his own sin and he feels it maybe for the first time. And in that moment he realizes, wait a second. There's, there's like servants in my father's house who are, at least they got some spare food, right? I'm going home. If, you, if you're going to give the young, younger son anything, you give him this. He moves quick, right? He was quick to leave. He's quick to come home. He's like, I'm ready. So I'm going to go home. So, so what does he do? He returns. He, he, he gets up. He comes to his senses. He, he, he says, hey, I'm going to set out, and I'm going to go back to my father's house, and then I'm going to say to him, right? He's got this whole speech prepared. Father. I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. I don't know if you ever, as a kid or anything, you're ever in trouble, you did something stupid, and you're ready to go back to your your parents and confess, right? And you prepare a little speech. You know what I'm talking about, right? Like, prepare a little speech, like, here's what I'm going to say, and this is going to be great. It's going to get me out of trouble. Um, And it never worked, at least not for me. Uh, But that's what he does, right? He prepares this little speech, and he goes marching on home. But the, uh, the, the actions of the father are really sort of the climax of this part of the story. Because here it says that while he was still a long way off, what happens? His father sees him and what? Is filled with compassion for him. Wow. That, word in com- that word in Greek, compassion, actually means he feels compassion like deep in his gut. He has this deep feeling of compassion for him. And he runs to his son. It literally means like he sprints out to his son, which was not only unusual, but it would have been a rather undignified thing for a man of this, of, of this person's age to do in this culture. And so these are unusual things, but, he, but he, he's filled with this deep compassion and he runs out to his son. He throws his arms around him, which actually literally means to wrap him around the neck and he begins to kiss him. I can't really overemphasize what I really believe to be the emotion that's built into this. I really think that Jesus is trying to paint a picture here of, of, of this powerful moment. It's not just a, hey, son, great to have you back. You know, you know make sure you clean the mud off your shoes before you come in. It's, it's, it's I'm, I, I see my son from a long way off. I sprint out to him. And after huffing and wheezing because I just ran so hard and so fast, I now grab him around the neck and kiss him. This is the picture, but check this out. It's not just, remember, this is a a story that Jesus made up to illustrate the character of God. This is a picture that Jesus is painting for us of who God is. Because God is full of grace. He is full of grace. Now I want to make one thing clear. It's not that God is approving of sin. That's not the case. We're never going to go down that path. But even though he is not approving of sin, God is still full of grace. And he is willing to show, as a matter of fact, he's more than just willing, he is eager to show compassion to repentant sinners. God longs for, and really the, the point of all three of the stories that Jesus tells in Luke 15 is that God not just longs for, but, but, but he's eager for, and he rejoices when. People finally leave behind the brokenness of sin and return home to Him. The reality is is that when you're ready to put down your sin and return home, I want you to know this. You will find a home in God. I want you to know that. Is when you're willing to put it all down and return back to the Father, 
the Father is not just willing, but He is eager to receive you. I was 17 years old. I, I didn't grow up in church. I, I knew very little about the gospel. As a matter of fact, I would say I knew pretty much zero about the gospel. I had had a couple of experiences with Christians that in my mind were kind of random. In retrospect, it wasn't random. It was God leading me towards himself. But, but, um, but I, I didn't know much about the gospel. I didn't know much about God. Um, and at 17, I found myself similar to the kid, or this younger son sitting in the pigsty. I wasn't in a pigsty, not, at least not, not literally, but maybe the, the, the circumstances of my own life had become like that. Because I, as a 17-year-old, I was a fool. And I mean that. Like, the stupidest, the most fullest. If it was dumb, I was like, yeah, that sounds good, right? Some of you are looking at me and you're thinking, yeah, I can see it, right? But um, I, it, it was just, I was just broken. I had just gone down this path of sin. I had gone down the path of destruction. And I found myself in a place where I literally was like, I don't know what to do next. I don't know where to go. I don't know where to turn. I don't know how to get satisfaction. I don't know why I feel so empty and scared and insecure. I just don't know what to do. And it was in that moment that God started to grab a hold of my attention for the first time. And it was in that moment that I returned back to the Father, or I really came to Him for the first time, and in that moment learned about what Jesus did for me on the cross. Learned about grace. I mean, I showed up to church for the first time the Sunday after Easter in 1996. I remember that for reasons I won't bore you with. And I literally didn't understand the gospel. I literally didn't know that Jesus had died for my sins. I literally didn't know anything that God was willing and and eager and, and, and ready to forgive me for all the stupid things I had done. But eventually I heard it. Eventually, I heard the gospel, and over time, I, re- I not only heard the gospel, but I began to realize that everything that I was struggling with was resolved on the cross. Now, Jesus tells this story. Obviously, he hasn't been to the cross yet, but he tells it in anticipation of what he's going to do on the cross, in which God sends his son to die. To become sin for sinful man so that we might know salvation, that we might have hope, that we might have joy, that we might have an eternity. This is the gospel. This is what this gracious God has done for us. And I'm here to tell you this morning that God has grace for the worst of us. God has grace for, for the worst of your sins. God has grace for the worst moments and the worst memories in your life. God has grace for you. That thing you've been holding on to, that one sin that, that, that kind of creeps, creeps around in the back of your mind, you like you remember it, and every once in a while you think about it, and you're like, yeah, does God really forgive me for that? Yes, he has grace for that. His grace covers that. That thing you did way back when in the summer of 2017, yes, God has grace for that, right? Whatever thing still burdens you with shame and guilt, God has grace for that. The relationships you've broken, the sexual sin, whatever it is, God has grace for you. Why? Because God has grace for sinners. That's what Jesus is talking about. He has grace for sinners. And our next point is that he has grace, excuse me, for saints. Picking up where we left off in Luke chapter 15, we're going to start off again back in, in, in verse 25. It says, meanwhile, so all this stuff had been going on. The son, the younger son had come home and there's a party going on. Verse 25, meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he hears music and dancing. So he calls to one of the servants and asked him, what was going on? Well, your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he, is, because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him, but he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him. Verse 31, my son, the father said, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. 
But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Remember again, this is a picture being painted by Jesus about God. We have to remember that. So again, the father obviously represents God. The younger son represents anybody who sins, which is all of us. The older brother specifically actually represents the Pharisees, right? Um, It's one thing to become an enemy of of the Messiah. It's a whole other thing when the Messiah creates a story and then paints you as the bad guy in his story. But that's basically what Jesus does here, right? The older son is the Pharisees, right? He's addressing their criticism, He's trying to communicate to them, look, this is where you are in this whole picture. This is kind of where you're standing right now in the kingdom of God. Whether or not they were able to hear that, um, I think some were and some weren't. But, but, but the older son really is the Pharisees. But, but also in that, the older son becomes representative of any person who would become sort of religious and works-based in their understanding of faith. The older son really represents anybody who looks at their faith through the lens of performance, trying to earn God's love. And we see the older son's response, right? Like, what, what happens? He comes out of the field. He's been working all day, which is clearly sort of his, his life, what he's been doing. And, and what is his response? He's angry. Maybe a little bitter. Maybe some jealousy, right? But he's angry. Because he really is focused on performance. That's his thing. And we see that in the text, right? I mean, what does he say? He basically says, like, he wants to be celebrated, right? Like, look at all the things that I've done. And you never got me a little goat so that me and my buddies can celebrate. Like, like, like I've never been celebrated for all the stuff I've done for you. And what's crazy is that he's actually mad at the father for what the father hasn't done for him. He sees, and, and this is actually the only, this is the only thing that we can all agree with the older brother about, is that he sees his younger brother as undeserving. And he's right about that, right? Let's, let's just all acknowledge that. The, the younger brother is undeserving, and that's really kind of what he's upset about, at least part of what he's upset about. But he sees his younger brother as undeserving, and what's interesting is the younger brother agrees with him. That was part of his speech, Right? He said, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. That's right. He, he wasn't worthy to be called the, the son. We're all unworthy. We're all undeserving. The reality is, is that is the definition of grace. Grace literally means unmerited favor, undeserved favor, unmerited or unearned forgiveness. So yeah, the older brother's right about one thing and the younger brother agrees with him. He was undeserving. But the problem with the older brother is that he thinks he is deserving. Does that make sense? That's the problem that he's having right now. Is whereas he sees that his younger brother is undeserving, he believes that he's earned it. He believes that look at the work I've done, right? I've earned it. And what he doesn't realize is that his father's grace isn't dependent on their behavior. Understand that. What he doesn't realize is that the Father's grace is not dependent on their behavior. Yeah, thank God is right. Amen. Yeah, you can clap for that. There's a gentleman uh, named Steinmetz who, who actually, interestingly enough, was writing about Martin Luther. He says this, the problem with human righteousness is not merely that it is flawed or insufficient though it is both. The problem with human righteousness is that it is irrelevant. All our righteousness, as the prophet puts it, is like filthy rags. That's a reference to Isaiah chapter 64, verse 6, where he says our righteousness is as filthy or polluted rags. The reality is, is that the Father's grace has never been dependent on our behavior or on our performance. It's not about whether you're too bad or whether or not you're so good. It's about the fact that God is gracious simply because he is. 
He's gracious because that is his character. That is his nature. His grace doesn't come as a response to human behavior. It comes because that's just who God is. But let's be honest, right? Let's be honest, church folks. You've been around for a while, right? Like if you've been, if you've been in the Christian faith for more than like 15 minutes, you, you have tried to earn God's favor at some point. We all have, Right? We've all gotten to that point where like, look, God, look at all the things I'm doing. You know what I mean? Like, look at, look at me. You know, I'm preaching here, you know, or maybe you joined the worship team. You know, maybe you've been volunteering with the children's ministry or whatever. Maybe you're a greeter, you know, you've been pouring the coffee for folks. You're like, Lord, look at all the stuff I'm doing. Look at all the time I'm spending for you, you know? We do it, right? We do it. And we think that somehow in that we're earning his love. We're all tempted to believe that. And that's what the older son really is is wrestling with here. That's what he misunderstands. And he forgets about the grace of his father. But here's the father's response. And this is fascinating. Just like he goes out to the younger brother, he also goes out to the older brother. This is an act of grace, right? Um, this point, the second point of my sermon is called Grace for Saints. Really, I wrestled with whether or not I should call it that, but, but really what it should be called is Grace for Saints when they become self-righteous. Because listen to this, church. Even when you become self-righteous and focused on your own performance, God has grace for you. God has grace for you in that moment. Because both of these things is an act of rebellion, Right? The, the younger son, I mean, that's kind of your classic rebellion, right? Like, that's kind of the classic, like, that's kind of the rebellion we expect to see, right? So the younger son goes off, gets wild, the whole bit. But, but this also is an act of rebellion, right? Here's the older son sitting outside the house with his arms folded, pouting like a little child, right? And, and any one of us, you know, I would have been tempted just like leave him there. Maybe like say, hey, maybe you can grow up a little bit. Maybe you should act like a man and stop, you know, stop pouting. But, but I'm not God, right? Like I'm not God. Um, uh, and, and God is gracious. And so he responds to the older son's rebellion in a similar fashion to how he responds to the rebellion of his younger son in grace. And it says that he pleads with him. And you can read a little bit of of, of how that conversation goes here, but he pleads with him. And what is he pleading with him to do? Well, it's to extend grace to his brother. Right? Right? What he's he's doing is he's trying to reason with him. He's He's trying to encourage him to understand what's important here. He's trying to share a piece of his heart, the father's heart, with him so that he can understand and then participate in extending the father's grace to his brother. See, that's the thing that the Pharisees were missing. It's one of the things that the Pharisees were missing, I should say that, but, but that's one of the big pieces that the Pharisees were missing is that they misunderstood the grace of God and they misunderstood their role as the people of God to extend his grace to others. But the thing about the, younger, the older son is that he can't extend grace right now. He's not actually in a position to extend grace because he's not in a position where he can accept grace. Because he doesn't believe he needs it. Right? He doesn't actually understand that he needs grace, so he can't accept grace, so he certainly can't extend grace to his brother. The older son becomes a picture of the expression of faith without grace. Right? That's where we get to religion. That's where we get to works-based Christianity. That's where we get to this performance-based Christianity where somehow it gets muddled up. It's not the gospel, but it gets muddled up in our minds that we have to do a bunch of stuff for God to love us. We don't do a bunch of stuff for God to love us. God loves us and then saves us so we can do good works. There's a priority. There's a list. There's an order to this thing. But what we need to do, what we need to understand as the church, if you're a follower of Jesus, what you need to understand is that God actually wants you to wield grace. He actually wants you to dispense grace. He actually, right, like Tyler says this all the time, that what comes to us must come through us or get through us, right? Like, like when grace comes to us, which, which it has, right? It has, like when grace comes to us, we, it's our role, 
It's actually our responsibility. It's actually our calling and our purpose to then let that grace flow through us into the world. And check this out. If you're worried about not having enough, you could never have more of it. You literally cannot exhaust the grace of God. You literally cannot exhaust the grace that God has for you, the grace that God has for your neighbors, the grace that God has for your marriage, the grace that God has for your weird cousin that came to Thanksgiving dinner. Like you literally cannot exhaust God's grace. There's just too much of it. It's abundant. It's eternal. It doesn't stop. There's not like a point where he turns off the faucet and says, that's enough grace for you. Like it just keeps going. And so it's my job to just take the riches of his grace and just spread them out into the world. That's my job. That's your job. That's the calling of the church. That's what the older brother was missing. It's what the Pharisees had forgotten, but it's what Jesus is there to remind us of. And it's what the father in his grace is being patient with them about. And so God has grace for sinners. He has grace for saints. And my last point, is that he has grace for sons. And I'll just confess to you, I don't really believe that this is one of Jesus' primary points in sharing this story. I really believe the primary point of this story is to share the character of God and to address the criticisms of the, criticisms of the Pharisees. I believe that's Jesus' primary purpose. Um, but, but when I've read this story throughout the years over and over again, this particular point to me always stands out. It just always hits me, and it's become kind of a a thing for me. Uh, This idea that the Father has grace for sons, grace for his children. Because both situations, with the older son and the younger son, both are relational problems. They really are. They're both relational problems. The first, right, is very clear. It's a clear rejection of the father by the younger son. The second is still a relational problem with the older son just pouting outside the house, not willing to come in and then arguing with him about, you never did all this stuff for me. These are relational issues. And both require the father to respond in grace. And what is that response? Well, it's very this. It's it's very simply and specifically this. In both situations, the father affirms their identities as sons. In both situations, he affirms their identities as his children. He actually interrupts the younger son's speech. I don't know if you picked that up ever when you read this text, but he actually interrupts his speech. Because what was the speech, right? You go back to... um, Verse 18, I'm going to to go back to my father. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. But down in verse 21, when he's going through the speech, he stops. And when he gets to, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, it says, but the father says to his servants. He doesn't get through his whole speech. As soon as he says, I am no longer worthy to be called your son, the father yells out to his servants, quick, Right, like makes an announcement to the servants, quick, bring the robe, get the ring, get some sandals, get the fattened calf, let's have a feast and celebrate. Why? He announces, why? For this son of mine. Here's the son coming saying, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And he announces to everyone, this son of mine was dead and is alive, was lost and is found. Now, the, the affirmation of the older son's identity is different. It's actually a little more subtle, but, 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 it's, but, it's, but it's interesting, and it's just as, as really as poignant. So he actually also affirms his relationship with the older son, looking down in verse 31. So the son goes through this whole, this whole tirade about all the things that he's upset about, yada, yada, yada. Verse 31, the father responds, my son, my son, you are always with me. And everything I have is yours. Now, if you read this text, you can count them up. There's nine or ten of them. The the usage of the word son. The word son, as an English translation, is all through this text. All of them are the same word in Greek, which is just a word that generally means male heir or male offspring. Except this one in verse 31. This one is a different word. It's the word tekron. 
And it literally, it means my son, but it can also be neutral. It means my child. It's actually a personal word. It's a word that a father would say to a son, maybe a grandfather would say, or a grandparent would say. Um, it could be said to a son or a daughter. A rabbi might use this word affectionately for one of their disciples, like my son, my child. It's a personal word. It's an emotional word. It's the same word that's used in Romans chapter 8, verse 16, where it says that the, Paul says the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. And so what does the father do? He affirms the identity of both of his sons as his children, which is an act of grace. See, here's the thing is God God affirms our identity as his children. God wants you to know this morning that you you are loved. You you are loved. You are his son. You are his daughter. You are his child. The problem with that, right, is that sin and self-righteousness will confuse our identity. When we get into when we go down a path of sin or we've gone down a path of sort of self-righteous performance-based Christianity, this confuses our identity. It confuses our understanding of who we are in Christ. Because sin will cause you to make you think that you've lost it, right? You go down that path and you think, oh, I for sure lost it with that one. Like there's no way God's gonna love me after that one. He's not gonna call me son anymore, right? You start to think I am no longer worthy to be called your son, to be called your daughter. Self-righteousness does something something similar, but it's the opposite. Self-righteousness makes us think that we have to earn it. Self-righteousness thinks causes us to think that we have to now earn this identity. But here's the gospel. The the gospel is is that you can't lose it with your bad behavior. You can't earn it with your good behavior. You have it because God has given it to you. You have it because God has said that you are a son. God has said that you are a daughter. God has said that you are his child. And if he said it, it can't be taken away. It can't be stolen. I have two daughters. Uh, My oldest daughter is 16. And uh, when she was very little, I don't remember when I started doing this, but when she was very little, I started kind of playing this game with her where I would say, hey, don't forget. You know, and, and, you know, don't forget what, obviously. And I would say, don't forget that I love you. Don't forget, right? And, And I would even say, don't forget that God loves you, right? Don't forget. Whatever you do, don't forget. And so we would play this game. I would do it at night, and, and I still do it with them. My, my younger daughter, who actually turned nine yesterday, so happy birthday, happy birthday Ruth. Uh, my younger daughter, we adopted. And so we adopted her um, in 2019. It was actually November of 2019, so about four years ago, just ex- almost exactly four years ago. And, and she was almost five when we brought her home. And what I, what I realized as I, we were kind of bringing her into our house, I realized kind of doing the math, I'm like, okay, my older daughter, by the time she was five, had probably heard me tell her that I love her probably thousands of times, right? Thousands and thousands of times. But my younger daughter had never heard me say it. So she's got a big deficit, right? That's what I'm looking at. I'm looking at it as a big deficit. We've got an I love you from your father deficit, and we need to rectify this. So, so I, start, I start like overdoing it with her, right? And I still, I still do it with her. I still do it. Um, I, I mean, I try to be very... Uh, uh, overt about this with my kids, right? Um, As I'm sure we all do. And so I started playing the same game with her where I'd say, Ruthie, don't forget. You know, don't forget. Dad loves you. And she would actually start to play back with me. She'd be like, I forgot. And I'm like, all right, okay, well, well, let me tell you again then. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and... And the reality is, is like, I love doing it. I love playing the game. And I get the, I get the privilege of dropping off Ruth every day at school now. And every day when she gets out of that car, I'd say, hey, don't forget. Don't forget. Because the reality is, is we forget. We go down these paths of sin and we forget that the Father loves us. We go down these paths of self-righteousness, which is so weird to me, but I do it too. You do it, I do it, we all do it. It's just so weird to me, but we do it and we forget that God loves us just because that's who he is. We forget. The reality is, is that our identities are an act of grace. Who we are as God's children is simply a result of his love for us. And it doesn't depend on your behavior. 
It doesn't depend on all the dumb things you did. You're not going to lose it. He doesn't depend on all the great things you've done. You're not going to earn it. So we started with Martin Luther, and I'm actually going to end our time with um, a guy named Copernicus. Some of you know who Copernicus is. Um, if you don't, you're going to get caught up real quick. We're getting real nerdy this morning at Mission Church, right? We're doing all kinds of history stuff, um, but, but it's fun. At least it's fun for me. You know, we'll see how you feel about it. You can tell me later if you don't like it. Um, so Copernicus, right? Interestingly enough, this guy Copernicus is actually a contemporary of Martin Luther. They live at almost the exact same time period, um, only being born and dying a few years apart from one another. And they do their most significant work also during a very uh, 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 similar time period. Interestingly enough, Copernicus also works for the Catholic Church. Seems like that was good work back in those days. Um, he, he's, a, he's what's called a canon. I don't actually know what a canon does, but I understand it to be some sort of priest. So he's some sort of canon. He works in the Catholic Church. But um, Copernicus, Copernicus's greatest work is, um, so he would, he actually, he was very well educated. And he would go around to different colleges, spend a year studying medicine, doing this. You know, obviously he's in the Catholic Church, so there's theology and different things that he's studying. But he spent a lot of time studying astronomy, right? And some of you know who Copernicus is. What he does, what his contribution ends up being to the world is that he's the first person to propose that the sun might be the center of the universe and not the earth. Now, fast forward just a little bit. We now know that the sun and the earth are not the center of the universe. It's the center of the galaxy, obviously. The sun is the center of the galaxy. But, but, but they didn't know that at the time, right? They didn't know all that. They thought that the earth, and, and really I think that whole thing had been started by Aristotle, that, that the earth was the center of the universe. And nobody, I mean, that was actually Catholic doctrine. Nobody would, would really question that. And so he comes along and he's studying all this stuff and he's doing all this math and physics and science. And I've tried to read a little bit of what he was talking about. I don't really get it. Maybe you get it. Maybe you're smarter than me and all that. But, but, but he comes to the conclusion, no, I don't think the earth is the center. I think the sun is the center. Now, what's fascinating is he just kind of threw, throws this out there as an idea. He's kind of playing with the idea. And the book that he ends up publishing is published in the same year of his death. This goes against Catholic doctrine, but he doesn't get condemned as a heresy, as a heretic. His ideas will about 100 years later be condemned as heresy by the Catholic Church when another guy named Galileo picks them up and starts to build off of them. But that's, that's too far down the wrong path. That's not where I'm going. We're not gonna talk about Galileo. The reality is, is that grace is a sort of Copernican revolution. Because here's what's happened. Some of you have put the wrong things at the center of your universe. Some of you have put your sin at the center of your life and you've just been following that thing and it's led you to a point of destruction. Some of you, you've been in church for a long time and you've taken your goodness, your righteousness, all your hard work for the kingdom, you've put that in the center of your universe. Interestingly enough, Martin Luther did both. He had his sin on the table, he had his good works on the table, and he was miserable trying to wrestle those two things out. But what grace is, what, what this text invites us to this morning, what God reminds us of is that like Copernicus, we need to put something else at the center of our universe rather than our sin and our righteousness. It's time to let grace take its rightful place and put Jesus at the center. And here's what I'm here to tell you is that when you put Jesus at the center, things change. Life changes. When I was 17 years old, I gave my life to Jesus in a little Baptist church downtown Martinez and my life changed in that moment. And God began in that day a process that really radically transformed the person that I was, that I was on the route to become. Like, I, I don't even know where I was gonna end up, but I know where I am today. And it's not because of my works, it's because of grace. It's because of God's work. It's because of what he's done. I'm gonna invite you to, to, to uh, bow your, your heads and, and close your eyes. And maybe you're here this morning and you've gone down that path of sin. And maybe you've even found yourself in some sort of kind of metaphorical pigsty. Maybe you're at that point of despair. Maybe you're at that point of brokenness. 
You've been following sin. You've been doing the whole sin thing. You've just been following your own, your own desires and it's led you to a place of despair. And maybe today, for the first time, you wanna to respond to the invitation that God has for you to come home and to receive grace. If anybody here would like to receive Jesus, if anybody here wants to give their life to Christ and receive his grace, go ahead and just raise your hand. Go ahead and just raise your hand. God sees you. God knows you. He knows your sin. He knows your brokenness. He knows your pain. He knows your despair. Maybe you've been in church for a while. Maybe you've been, you've, you've, you've been in church. You've been doing the church thing. Maybe you've spent years and years and years serving, serving God and serving his kingdom. And you've kind of gotten to a place where you've been saying, you know what? God, look at me. Look at all the things I've done. And, and maybe you've put your righteousness and your performance at the center of your life. If you're here this morning and you want to repent of that, you want to give that back to Jesus and just let his grace guide you again. I want to go ahead and just so I know who I'm praying for, I just want you to go ahead and raise your hand. God sees you. God sees you and he knows it. Whether you're, whether you're in the place of brokenness because of sin or whether you're in a place of self-righteousness because of your focus on performance, God offers you grace. Father, we are grateful. We're foolish. We're sinful, we're broken, we get tempted by all kinds of things, God, but you are filled with grace and you offer us abundant grace, eternal grace. Lord, your grace never ends. We thank you for that. We thank you for those this morning who in this place, in this moment, in this time are willing to say, Lord, we need your grace. And Lord, we do. We need your grace. We are dependent on it. We haven't graduated from it. God, we need it today as much as we've ever needed, and we're going to need it again in the morning. And so, Lord, we just pray. May we keep you at the center of our lives. And we pray all this with gratitude in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for listening to the Mission Church Podcast. If you enjoyed it, make sure you subscribe so you can keep up on our weekly sermons. If you're in the Bay Area, we invite you to come join us on Sundays. You can find all the details on our website at missionchurchca.com. Again, thanks so much for listening, and we hope to see you soon.